Welcome to episode number 184 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and today we have on a very special guest, Kaylee Rayner Brown from Obex Risk. We're talking about application of bow tie analysis and inherently safer design in Canadian wood pellet mills. A really exciting topic. Kaylee is a bachelor in chemical engineering at Dalhousie, a master of applied science in chemical engineering at uh, Dal as well, which is uh, my old university as well, which I'm pretty excited about to have her on. She started OBEX Risk back in 2021 after research activities. Kaylee, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Excited to have you on. Thanks for having me here, Chris. I'm really excited to talk with Kaylee on this project today. This is sort of a follow-on of some episodes we did previously. So episode 131, 132, and 133 were all around this WorkSafe BC, that's British Columbia Innovation at Work project, inherently safer bow ties for dust hazard analysis. This is a project that's funded through WorkSafe BC. And in particular, in this case, this project was put together by the project partners, BC Forest Safety Council, Woodpell Association of Canada, Dalhousie, OBEX Risk, and Dust Safety Science. Um, and we all really kind of played a hand in putting the product together and working through it. Kaylee was really at the pointy end of the stick, if you will, implementing, providing training, doing workshops on bow tie analysis, and doing the uh, assessment of the results. So the three previous podcast episodes were the history of Woodpell Association of Canada with Gordon Murray, and that was 131, identifying and implementing critical controls in wood pellet facilities with Sherry Whalen. That was 132. Then inherently safer design using bow tie analysis for combustible dust with Dr. Paul Amiot. That was episode 133. So those were all done sort of before or in the early stage of the project. Project's been completed now. We're going to talk about what some of the findings were that were came out of this research um, in the research report. So a couple of definitions, and then I will get in and we'll, we'll let Kelly describe uh, some of her background as well. Inherently safer design, ISD. Includes things like minimization, substitution, moderating or modifying the hazards and simplifying the hazards. And elimination can be thought of as the ultimate uh, minimization. So these are ways to reduce um, and actually remove the hazards from process safety span standpoint or combustible dust standpoint instead of adding on engineering solutions or instead of adding on administrative controls. Uh, and more generally, the hierarchy of controls then, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit in this episode as well and some of the findings that came out of this work. We'll talk about Kaylee's master's research, looking for a protocol for implementing inherently safer design, some of the major phases of work for this WorkSafe BC Innovation at Work project, also the main takeaways and opportunities from these research activities. So Kaylee, I think I've yammered on enough. For your background, how do you get, how do you get involved in process safety and you know what's your role in the industry today? Well, first off, Chris, a great job uh, and thank you for summarizing kind of some of the key um, topics that, you know, that I'm specialized in and that and that we've really been applying and working with the wood pellet industry in, in Canada, um, primarily BC, but, you know, obviously applicable um, through, through the collaboration with uh, the Wood Pellet Association of Canada. So thanks again for, for that nice outline. Uh, to kick the, the podcast off today. So I got involved uh, with process safety almost four years ago. I, uh, like you mentioned, have a Bachelor of Engineering in, in Chemical. And uh, previous to that, I did complete a, a chemistry degree as well at Acadia University here in Nova Scotia. So between my chemistry degree as well as a chemical engineering degree, I had a lot of experience in environment health and safety. I did a couple of work, uh, co-op work terms at, uh, at a couple of 
facilities in and around Atlanta, Canada, where I was able to get that experience primarily focusing on environmental initiatives, but um, a couple of health and safety ones as well. So really for the past, goodness, almost 10 years, environment, health and safety has really been at the forefront of, of my, my work and what I'm really interested in. So after I completed my Bachelor of Chemical, Chemical Engineering degree, I uh, worked at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories for about two years and then decided, you know, that I really wanted to go back to, to graduate school. So I had the opportunity, gratefully, to undertake a master's in applied science with Dr. Paul Amiot, like you mentioned, at Dalhousie University. So I had the good fortune of taking Paul's uh, process safety course in undergrad. And like I said, you know, uh, health and safety. It was always, I really, really enjoyed that course. And it was just really a natural next step to do research in the area. So yeah, I had the opportunity to finish my master's with Paul in March, 2020, just kind of as the, the world was changing and uh, worked with him for uh, a bit more than a year as a research associate and then launched OBEX Risk. So I've been really fortunate to continue collaborating with the BC Forest Safety Council, the Wood Pellet Association of Canada, you and, and Paula Dalhousie here. Um, so I'm really looking forward. I'm really proud of the work that, that we've undertaken and that we've accomplished through the first Innovation at Work project. And I'm really excited for, for everything that is to come. Yeah. And I think we'll actually talk a bit about the, the second Innovation at Work project, the one that's currently underway now in, in this episode. So I'll be interesting for the audience to see what's coming down the tracks. I do want to just point out, so Dr. Paul Amiot, many of the listen to the podcast would know that he was also my academic supervisor or one of my co-supervisors. Dr. Rob Ripley was the other for my master's and ended up actually being my, my PhD research at the end of the day. He's really kind of created through training qualified graduate students and working with industry in Atlanta, Canada, a pretty good hub now for combustible dust folks. You know, we have Jensen Hughes has an office in Halifax with Martin Cloutier. We have folks like Diane Cave, like Jeremy Sloan White from Element Six Solutions and in Remby, respectively. We have uh, Dr. Shok Dasadar from Fausking Associates, uh, myself, uh, yourself, and, and many others we've actually had on the podcast before that all came out of the last 20, 30 years of, of Paul's research activities in process safety, inherently safer design, which we'll talk a bit about in this episode, and dust explosion research more broadly. So I do want to just give a hat tip to him. And also, I don't know, I didn't prep you for this question, but how did you end up with Paul as your, your research advisor? What kind of made you think of that going down that road? Because I think it's led to some interesting things with your work and, and certainly with the formation of OBEX and, and where you're headed with the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's a really good question. I am, I, there's just so many similarities, honestly, Chris, between you know risk management and environmental protection and what we do in process safety. Um, I'd like to think that process safety may be uh, potentially a little bit more, if you will, at least from the environmental protection side of things, you know, maybe a little bit more on the preventative side, if you will, you know, there, there aren't um, environmental impacts, you know, from potentially, you know, a loss of containment or, um, you know, a process safety incident, if we're able to prevent it, obviously, in the first place. And I think a lot of the similarities, it's really interesting from the inherently safer design perspective, a, a lot of those principles can be, and I probably you know, they, they could be applicable, obviously, to environmental protection efforts. So really just from a risk management and a protection of people in public perspective, health and safety and process safety was just something that, that always interested me. And of course, you know, Paul's work in the field. I mean, he is 
um, a recognized specialist in process safety, ISD, dust explosions. So yeah, I just, I was really eager to approach him for, for that, for that opportunity to undertake that work. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I had had, I had down to two supervisors. One was extremely heavy math focused, Dr. Sergei Ikalov. And I would have spent, uh, I, I already spent seven years deriving equations, but I would have <laughs> spent seven years deriving more intense equations, even though the ones that I did work on were pretty intense. <laughs> but when I did the interview with Paul, just the industry applied aspect of what he's doing really inspired me. And, and I wouldn't have started the the blog at my desk explosionresearch.com when started the podcast when started dustx research in general um, without that applied focus that he he given to actually make a, a difference in industry so yeah exactly i mean in in general paul is just we're, we're going to be singing paul's praises here should change the title of the episode to something different <laughs> yeah exactly i mean uh, like i said like i had had the chance to meet paul like during the completion of my undergrad. I mean, and just the first impression of working with him. He's professional. He's easy to talk to. He's approachable. From the the graduate school, you know, supervisor student relationship, that is extremely important, which I, I did learn throughout the course of of my graduate studies. So yeah, I think if anyone is listening to this podcast, thinking about going into grad school, I know this could be a whole other podcast, but just really considering what you hope to achieve from graduate school, you know, are you really looking to uh, develop as a professional? Are you really looking to network? Are you looking to gain that industry experience? Do you want to publish? What is kind of your end goal for, for after graduate school? And those are all kinds of questions and reflecting that I think you need to do and looking at kind of the opportunities and options that are out there and finding someone um, as a supervisor who that you can align with and who can help support you reach those goals. And certainly Paul and I, I feel like we've been very aligned and had a great working relationship during the course of graduate school and, and continue to. So very, very fortunate. Couldn't agree more. And if you are listening to this and you do want to get into graduate work in combustible dust or process safety or environment health and safety, you certainly reach out to myself um, or Kaylee and, and ask. We're actually a part of a separate committee that we're trying to work on centralizing the resources for uh, explosion research. Um, that's not quite ready yet. But I'm sure when that is available, we'll point you to the list and say, here are all the, the universities that you can, you can go to that have active programs and research projects. So yeah, I appreciate you expanding and going on a little bit of a tangent with me on that topic. Let's kind of circle back around. So we have your research activities. We have your master's work. We have the WorkSafe BC funded through WorkSafe BC Innovation and Work Project feeding into this, this concept of inherently safer bow ties for dust hazard analysis. I want to kind of walk through a couple of those steps. So in your master's research, can you just walk us through this, this protocol for implementing inherently safer design? You may even be able to provide a little bit better of a definition than I, I kind of botched in the introduction. So you can provide a definition of what ISD is. Um, and then what is this kind of protocol process that you, you sort of work through in your, your academic research? Yeah, I know that's great. And you didn't totally botch it, Chris. No worries at all. You had the four principles. You had the hierarchy of controls. You hit all the high spots. So I guess I will reiterate just for um, completeness sake. So inherently safer design or ISD uh, focuses on the treatment or elimination of hazards, like you mentioned, Chris, rather than only relying on add-on safety equipment or procedures or ad administrative controls. Inherently safer design is based on four principles, uh, minimization, uh, substitution, 
simplification, moderation, and simplification. So I'll give some examples um, in the context of wood pellet operations of inherently safer design. So for minimization, uh, designing equipment or facilities uh, to minimize combustible dust accumulations, for example. So that could be sealing off areas that could be hard to reach to remove combustible dust. It could be minimizing horizontal surfaces where combustible dust could accumulate, you know, adding slopes and edges where possible. Those are just a few examples of, of minimization. For substitution, uh, there's a number of opportunities there. It could be uh, substituting the correct electrical equipment for the, the hazardous area that the electrical equipment is being used in. It could be substituting conveying methods from you know, bucket elevators to more dense forms of transport. And another one may be you know, using a conducting materials for conveying combustible materials example. So those are a couple of examples of substitution. For simplification, an example of moderation would be locating equipment um, away from like personnel. You know, if you have uh, a vessel, for example, and it has explosion venting on it, you know, relocating that away from personnel uh, so there'd be less likelihood that they could be impacted if the explosion vent were, were to rupture, for example. An example of simplification would be uh, redesigning processes or, you know, human machine interface or procedures, for example. Um, that's a bit of an administrative overtone, but, you know, making it processes more easily understood, simplifying them, uh, reducing chances for error. Another example of simplification would be uh, designing and building structures to withstand the maximum possible pressure that could be reached um, in the case or the chance of an explosion, for example. So those are just a couple examples, uh, a rather long list, I guess I would say, of um, inherently safer design opportunities in uh, in wood pellet operations. No, I think that's good. It's nice when you talk about ISD to, to have the the concrete examples to sort of walk through and Paul and yourself really came up. I don't know who came up with the term, but I've heard you two use it quite a bit, this example based guidance and having this sort of library of, I think mind triggers is sort of some of the terminology I've heard used where it's like, Oh, we have this type of equipment. I've heard about these different ways to implement safety in a more inherently safer manner and sort of give you some ideas. So this example based guidance is, is really useful to folks to say, yeah, that is, inherently safer design and to give them some options. Yeah, exactly. So on the example-based guidance point, that's that's exactly it. It serves as mind triggers and ways for end users to consider inherently safer design options in their facility because inherently safer design is hazard specific. So we can do our best by providing, you know, checklist questions. That's another approach to incorporating ISD is uh, checklist questions where you would ask yourself, you know, is there a way that we could minimize hazardous material? Can we replace, you know, one process with one that is uh, less hazardous? Can we simplify something to make it less prone to human error? Could we uh, change, you know, the conditions around the hazard that it would reduce the severity or likelihood of, of um, an incident if that were to occur. So you can kind of tell already, I framed those those checklist questions. They're, they're very open-ended and that's great because it promotes brainstorming. But, you know, kind of one of the downsides of it is that answering those checklist questions is kind of obviously restricted to the expertise in the in the room and by if ISD is not 
very well known if, you know, potentially the personnel in the room who are doing a design review or, you know, looking for ISD options, they might be just looking for other examples of, well, how could we minimize hazardous material? Uh, how could we substitute? You know, how could we simplify? So that's the value that example-based guidance is, is bringing to incorporating and enhancing ISD implementation is that it's helping and guiding users to give them some concrete examples, like you said, of how ISD could be incorporated and saying, oh, well, that is directly applicable to our facility, or it's not quite applicable, but it made me think of something else that we could actually do to make things inherently safer. So yeah, the example-based guidance collection was a really big part of my master's work, where I looked at annual performance and evaluation reports from Contra Costa County in California, where ISD is actually part of an industrial safety ordinance that they have there. So different regular jurisdiction and approach in the United States and here in Canada where process safety management is is voluntary. So in the states there, in the state of California, particularly in this Contra Costa County, uh, there is a library. Well, I was able to collect them. They're publicly available. The power of Google, right? Uh, I was able to collect almost 20 years of these annual reports review them, analyze them, and collect example-based guidance from those reports. Because the different facilities that are part of this jurisdiction are actually reporting or in, in, in indicating how they are incorporating ISD into their facilities. So that's exactly what you know we're looking to understand and communicate with the rest of um, industry. Is you know here are practical, real-world examples of how ISD can be and is being incorporated in operating facilities. So that research was published in Process Safety and Environmental Protection in uh, 2020. So that's available in that archival journal. I guess maybe, Chris, we could link to it or whatever you'd, you'd want to do. But uh, yeah, all that example-based guidance is published as part of that journal article. Yeah, I'll grab the link for that and we'll share in the show notes. And we can also probably find Kaylee's master's thesis if she's willing to share it and put the link in there as well if you want the, if you want the full detailed version. Yes. Excellent. So we, got to, we pulled off a couple of things here. So we, we talked about example-based guidance. We talked about using that as mind triggers to establish potential options for ISD. You talked a bit about kind of the a checklist approach. And so I love the checklist approach because there's a, a whole there, there's a whole history. <laughs> People have been using checklists for process safety and inherently safe design for a long time in certain industries. But then I also struggle with it because we haven't been doing as much in combustible dust. And so that sort of built up of of Example-based guides is really one of the sort of the, the key, the forefront, the way forward to establish that. You mentioned how in your thesis, because of the reporting requirements to explicitly report ISD activities in contract, I hate that county's name. We'll call it CC County because I'll I'll, uh, I'll keep messing it up the whole time in California. Um, because those reporting requirements, you're able to peel out and and establish some of that example-based guides in your thesis. So those are some of the elements. What are the steps, I guess, that we use that you used really in the the innovation at work project for establishing the hierarchy of controls and critical controls for um, these wood pellet mills? Like, was there a standard procedure that we used to go through? That's a great question. So I guess 
at this point, I should probably circle back to just kind of highlight, because I don't think I really explicitly discussed it yet, you know, the the protocol for in implementing inherently safer design. Chris, I yeah, know that you right. asked me, I I got off, off track with the example-based guidance. Page 131 of, of, uh, of Kaylee's master's thesis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the protocol is just, it's one approach um, and it is, it's, it's an approach or a framework that an end user could apply to to incorporate inherently safer design within process hazard analysis, specifically bow tie analysis. So when we talk about inherently safer design and the hierarchy of controls for combustible dust risk management or risk management in general, you use all four uh, types of controls. It's not that we are saying that you can only use inherently safer design. ISD should work in conjunction with those passive engineered controls, active engineered controls, as well as those safe work procedures. So in terms of the protocol for incorporating ISD, we're just encouraging users to first think about adding in and and identifying ways you could incorporate inherently safer design into your into your safety barriers into your safety measures and the safety systems that you are currently using at your facility or or designing into a facility we're just asking or encouraging you to incorporate ISD first prior to those add-on uh, engineered and procedural controls. So in the protocol, you would uh, first off identify kind of what life cycle stage you're, you're at in the facility. So are you at the design stage or are you operating? Because uh, inherently safer design the, is most beneficial when incorporated at the design stage. Uh, that's kind of where the most benefit, the most value, if you will, is is seen. But that's not to be said. It, there are opportunities to implement that uh, during the operational life cycle stage too. But we just uh, first encourage you to identify, reflect on, okay, what life cycle stage am I at? Because that may affect the feasibility of some of the recommendations that come out after applying the protocol and after identifying some ISD opportunities and say, you know, like we're at the design stage. Let's you know, go this design route instead. The, let's take this ISD design route or route the operational life cycle stage. And it's just not economically feasible, uh, for example, to to do such and such change. But, you know, at least we've documented it. We've reflected on that. And um, if conditions change in the future, you know, potentially incorporating that ISD option may be feasible. Again, it's very hazard specific, very facility specific. So, uh, again, starting with the protocol, identify your life cycle stage, then do your bow tie analysis. So uh, you would go through that process to develop a bow tie, which involves, you know, identifying the the top event, you know, the negative or the undesirable incident that you're looking to prevent, you know, how can, what kind of conditions or scenarios can exist that could lead to that top event? What are your consequences that you would want to mitigate or, or uh, prevent really? And what uh, barriers or safety measures do we have in place? Uh, so, you know, those could be your explosion venting, it could be deflagration isolation, it could be hot work programs, so on and so forth. And then uh, you would look at those different barriers that you have in place, and say, well, are we actually using any 
inherently safer design? Like where, where do all of the different barriers fall with respect to the hierarchy of controls? So, you know, are we relying heavily on administrative, for example? Do we have a range of different types? But first off, I mean, you would identify, are we actually using any inherently safer design? Have we minimized inventory in our silos, for example? Did we relocate equipment, uh, hazardous equipment away from personnel? So identify ISD first, and then start to look at that example-based guidance to uh, start to identify, okay, how could we, how may we incorporate some ISD principles? And after you do that, then you would consider, okay, well, should we add on, do we need to add on any additional, you know, engineered or procedural controls? Uh, can we incorporate isolation, deflagration isolation if we haven't um, already? So on and so forth. And then at the end of the protocol, you would just look at the different recommendations, look at what ISD options were identified and consider what is feasible and uh, and how you want to move forward, really. So at a very high level, that's the protocol. But the, the rub is, you know, just consider ISD prior to prior to moving on and only relying on those add-on safety controls and procedures. I think it's really important to, to establish that. The two pieces, like the, you explained the protocol really well, and I sort of drew a picture and and of how how the steps sort of work in my mind. But two notes. One is it gives you a place to explicitly consider and asking questions about, you actually, you adjusted your terminology there at one point, which is really good. You went from can we incorporate ISD to how may we incorporate ISD. So actively thinking about ways to, to incorporate it and not, and you do hear this quite a bit, like I've talked to folks from industry about inherently safer design at some points and they say, well, we're past the design stage, so it can't be done. I'll, I'll just give kind of an example because you, you just sort of say, well, it's most beneficial the earlier you can do it in the life cycle. If you do in the design stage, that's really great. So an example of this is like from, from Trevor Kletz, uh, autobiography by accident, a life preventing them in industry. And, and he's often seen as one of the forefathers of inherently safer design. And, and, you know, uh, Paul's, worked quite a bit with Trevor um, before his passing a number of years ago. Well, the example is, is, you know, having an elderly parent that lives in a home alone is a two-story house. So you have some options, right? Their bedroom's upstairs. You can get them a chairlift. You can, you know, tell them this is the right way to go down the stairs. You make sure they have a cane handy at both sides of the stairs. So they have the, you know, have all these engineering and administrative possibilities to reduce the chance of falling down the stairs. Or you could buy a new house <laughs> that doesn't have stairs. So that's, you know, that's inherently safer for them than trying to find better ways for them to go up and down the stairs. So that obviously then talks about feasibility. Well, can we afford a new host? You know, can they, can they move? Do they want to move? That's where the checklist sort of falls down and these other more comprehensive approaches, like you're talking about your protocol, um, the protocol developed with your, your thesis work and use sort of in this project, you start to evaluate feasibility. Well, maybe it's not feasible. Well, okay, then do we just throw it all out the window and say it's inherently safe, inherently safe design things no good? Well, probably not because what if, you know, we just move her bedroom, his or her bedroom downstairs, <laughs> you know? So it's, so it's like, oh, we have this nice big room here. Well, let's just move the bedroom downstairs and then they don't have to go upstairs. So there are ways to incorporate inherently safer design that is inherently safer without administrative controls, without engineering controls during the act, like without actually going to square one and redesigning. It just takes some critical thinking and, and maybe switching that terminology to how can we to but in what ways can inherently safer design or will inherently safer design work in this situation? 
don't know. That's a pretty big spiel, Kaylee. Anything to, to add about that? I think that's a fantastic example, actually. No, I, I have nothing to add. And I hope that that kind of paints a picture, I guess, for the audience who may be less versed with ISD, if you will. That's a nice, realistic, um, you know, real life example. So no, nothing, nothing to add. No notes. Well, it comes from the, it comes from, from uh, Trevor Kletz himself, at least the, the, the stairs in the house. I added the the um, non-design aspect of it while we, while you were talking here. That's fantastic. Um, so, okay. So we have this protocol that's, I mean, the, if I had to summarize the high level steps, it would be build a, a bow tie diagram for the top level events you're trying to prevent. So this could be a dust deflagration, a dust explosion in a piece of equipment, um, ignition. There's, there's several options here. Um, identify all the threats. That's your left side of your bow tie diagram. Identify all the consequences. Look at all the barriers or controls that are in place currently today then evaluate, start to rank them, you know, well, where are they in the hierarchy of controls? Are there any inherently safer design barriers put in place? And from that, then you start to look at, this is where we're at today. Then you start looking at example-based guidance to say, well, in which ways can we include inherently safer design? Which ways can we include less elements that are further up or down the hierarchy of controls, whichever way you look at it, and then getting into feasibility. And, and then there's even more than that. There's degradation factors and other things, you know, down the road for those barriers as well. Yeah, precisely. I guess, was that sort of the process that was used in this innovation work project? Maybe talk about that a bit and then we'll, we'll circle around to some of the outcomes of, of the research. But what what did you you end up doing with the wood pellet mills and, and what did that look like? Yeah, that, that, that's great. I'm, I'm really excited to kind of share how this has been applied in the wood pellet industry. Really grateful and fortunate to be able to directly apply my, my graduate research to an industrial problem and, and develop a solution. So yeah, Chris, that is exactly the process that was used in terms of, I guess, the follow-on research that was completed after the, the bow tie development. So the project really... Uh, began, you know, the full-on um, engagement with BC FSC, the Forestry Council, and WPAC really began, I think I, the first Innovation at Work project, I think began on October 1st, 2020. So, the project really started, first off, with the stakeholder engagement. So, there was a concurrent uh, project going on with WPAC and BCFSC critical control management. I know that you've mentioned that a couple of times so far. So that was a project that was being driven to really uh, conduct bowtie analyses for the wood pellet operations and identify critical controls. So there's a number of criteria that can be used to deem a control uh, critical. You know, it could be particularly in the context of bowtie analysis, it allows you to visualize your, your barriers so well, so, uh, or, or your control so well. So a critical control could be one that appears in multiple bow ties. It could be one that appears on multiple threat or consequence lines in the same bow tie. Basically, kind of the high level question that is asked to operations is, you know, if all your other controls were to fail, you know, which one could potentially stop the top event uh, from occurring? What could stop that ignition? What could stop that dust explosion? So at a high level, that was the the CCM or the critical control management project that was that was uh, ongoing. So the first step was to develop these these bow ties with the wood pellet operations. So it really began with that stakeholder engagement, like I said, to really kick off 
you know, these are the bow tie workshops that we're going to do. This is what the the process will be like. You know, this is what bow tie analysis is. Here are, you know, here's the terminology. Here's the methodology that we're going to apply. So we did uh, two bow tie workshop uh, pilots is what we we called them. So we developed the bow tie analyses with kind of two initial facilities, if you will. And those were for the primary process units of interest in the wood pellet plants. So your pelletizer, hammer mill, dryer, uh, conveyance systems, uh, cyclones or bag houses, I believe. Um, there might be a couple of other units that I'm missing, but at a high level, raw material storage as well, I think was was one of them. Uh, my apologies, I should be recalling this better. So we developed bow tie analyses for those. And those kind of were used as a benchmark, if you will, for subsequent, we call it bow tie validation, which was the follow-on work that was completed by uh, Bill Laternis and Tyler Bartels, uh, primarily at BCFSC, and in conjunction with uh, all of the other wood pellet operations that were part of the CCM project. So once we established or developed these baseline bow ties, then the subsequent operations were able to complete, like I said, these validation activities where they'd be able to look at the bow tie and say, you know, we have these controls that are already in this existing bow tie, or, you know, we don't have those. So kind of, you know, if you will, we'll exclude those from our analysis. You know, um, but we have these other controls in, instead, so we could add those to our bow tie. So using that as a baseline, and then the operations were able to go through and identify, you know, use that criteria and go through the process to identify their critical controls. And kind of the key activities around CCM were identifying responsibilities, roles, accountabilities to help ensure that those controls deemed critical would be more reliable and um, really ensuring the the different processes and systems that are in place to help make sure that those controls are more reliable. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think like, that's a really good summary. I didn't want to I did want to circle back to those earlier podcasts with Sherry and with Gordon and with with Paul, 131 through to 133. It's kind of like it's almost like, okay, why is this important? So if you go to 131, that's the history of the Woodpell Association of Canada. Gordon talks about the lumber mill explosions in 2012, both fatal in, in British Columbia. The wood pellet mill at the time, how well it's doing against compliance standards, how it's doing against safety standards. That sort of drives, you know, why do, why do we care about this challenge at all? The what we are doing comes from, well, comes from all the stakeholders, but BC4 Safety Council with the interview with Sherry talks about critical controls. So what controls are those that address multiple threats? What controls, if all the other ones failed, would actually prevent the type of loss that we're looking at? And then how? And how ties into, okay, well, the bow tie analysis inter- interview with Dr. Paul Amiot, this interview with yourself of, okay, develop the bow ties, identify the controls that are in place, you know, find ways to rank, improve, ideate, um, understand, you know, what what options are there to develop their feasibility to understand how they degradate over time. And that's really the, the how of this whole multi-year project, what's turning out to be. And then um, moving forward from this, we actually have a new innovation work project starting this year. That's already started. Um, Kaylee's working heavy, heavily on it at the moment. And that one is integrating process safety management into Canadian wood pellet 
industries generate combustible dust. I think the titles might have a word or two switched there, but it's really okay. Well, we evaluate all the critical controls and we have ISD concepts and we have bow tie analysis and process hazard analysis more generally moving into more robust process safety management in these industries. Where are they at today is what that question, that project asks. And then how do we get them to the next stages of integrating process safety management? So sort of like a multi-year process, if you will, driven by a lot of these stakeholders. And I do appreciate it wouldn't have happened with OPC4 Safety Council or the Woodpell Association of Canada. Probably wouldn't happen without Gordon and Sherry um, and Bill and and Tyler and the others that have really put in a lot of legwork. It certainly wouldn't have happened without yourself doing the workshops and getting the information, piling information, thinking critically about it, figuring out what it means for, for everyone involved, and then coming out with the you know the proposals. So that's that's sort of the life cycle of this project. Let's let's talk about some of the main takeaways, and then we'll kind of close with this episode and Hopefully, out of some future ones on you know where the project ended up going from here. So, okay, we we have the barriers identified. What were some of the main takeaways from the identification of proposed or existing barriers with respect to? Let's start the target controls, move into ISD, and then any opportunities kind of moving forward. So, what were some of the main takeaways for the hierarchy of controls with the facilities that we looked at? So it was really interesting to find that actually all of the facilities did have some ISD barriers and controls already you know, in place. Uh, for example, like I mentioned, relocating equipment kind of further away from personnel, uh, minimizing some inventory storage. There are a couple examples, um, but I, I guess the the key point is that it it wasn't being uh, explicitly considered like we've said before. So the protocol application really helps to explicitly and deliberately consider ISD and the example-based guidance uh, specifically for combustible dust hazards, which was another key focus of this first IAW project, will help hopefully help the explicit incorporation of ISD uh, be completed um, in wood pellet operations. So like I said, a lot ISD can be leveraged even more so at the uh, design stage, but it can still be considered at operational. You know, even just things like, you know, making sure that a lot can still be done at the operational stage. ISD can be considered through management of change, through incident investigation, as as well as process hazard analysis. So uh, again, using that example-based guidance and those checklist questions, operations can look and consider, you know, how may we incorporate ISD? And like I said before, all of the different controls in the hierarchy really comprise and make up effective risk reduction. I think a really interesting point that comes out of the protocol application and the development of the bow ties is looking at, you know, what kind of diversity do we have in, in the different controls that we're using? In some cases, in some bow ties, there were you know, some threat lines that were primarily administrative controls. So getting maybe some more diversity, incorporating some engineered controls and ISD uh, barriers as much as possible would be a really key point to focus in on. Because when you have, you know, for example, you know, all administrative controls, and then you go that next level and find that for the degradation factors and the degradation factor controls, when those are also administrative, I think that that's uh, really challenging because you have inherently weaker 
administrative barriers. And then the only controls that you have in place to help ensure that those barriers would be less likely to be defeated are also administrative. It's a bit of a double whammy, if you will. So there's also an opportunity to apply the protocol and look at that next level of the bow tie and looking at those degradation factor controls and say, you know, can we automate something where we can instead of having, you know, someone manually check something instead, you know, can we add an alarm and active engineered uh, system here? Again, just removing that human element and moving as high up as you can on the hierarchy. I think that that is just, that would bring a lot of value to, to the operations as much as possible. Yeah, I like that. And I think there's a couple of key points. So we did dive into combustible dust hazards in this project, which is really nice. Um, and eventually the project report and work will, I think, be made available through um, WorkSafe BC's project program. It's sort of under review now. And, and when that becomes available, then if you're interested in that, just send me an email and I'll let you know what the status of that, you know, kind of come and go public is. But it, just collecting those hazards up for the industry involved. And there was do you know how many members Woodpell Association of Canada has? Like generally, like a couple dozen mills in Canada. Is that close? Yeah, you can look at canadianbiomass.com or .ca. Sorry, I'm not sure which it is. They do have a really cool Canadian-wide wood pellet plant map. So you can see actually where all of the different plants are. And at the bottom, there is a table that would state the company and the annual production as well. So I, I want to say, I hope I do this justice. I want to say there's over 40 plants um, across Canada. Some of those are owned by the same company. So uh, yeah, the same company would have multiple facilities. But uh, in all, in terms of the critical control management project, I believe there were 15 different facilities that partook in and were involved um, explicitly in the CCM project. Yes. And that's what I kind of want to highlight is so these combustible dust hazards were brought to the forefront, evaluated with this an explicit approach for these 15 facilities, and then potentially, you know, more within Canada that can, can rely on this information. And a couple other points you point like so explicitly writing down in the framework the different elements it's it's sort of like it's the next level so you said you went through and in the process of the bow ties and and looking at the controls that are in place established yeah there are some inherently safer options here we we moved equipment from point a to point b we moved conjugation areas that people generally at you know away from different areas so there's things that were put in place but they were probably put in place under a framework of like, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, that's a good idea. And never documented or written down or, or sort of evaluated on how good of an idea it is. And if I tie back to this, this uh, you know, elderly parent in a house, well, okay, so say we did this analysis and we determined that they should, they should sleep downstairs and, and that's great. But, it, you know, if we wrote those down, it comes where they're actually going to buy a new host because it becomes feasible in the future to make changes. We might forget, <laughs> go, oh, well, look, this host, it's really awesome. It's, you know, it's got three stories and, and the price is perfect. Realize that, oh yeah, our, our establishing factor for this was to get rid of stairs. Um, but we forgot to write that down as, you know, it's sort of just a good idea gone in the wind now. So explicitly identifying the, the ideas that come up, ranking them against hierarchy controls, ranking them against inherently safer design concepts, documenting that material is really good. And then you kind of mentioned a couple other key ones here. So I wrote them as uh, diversity, integration, and robustness. And I don't know if I've heard them kind of said this way, but diversity is a great one. You need a diversity of controls so that you don't want to have everything that's reliant. I, I can't think of a great example, but 
if you had like a really heavy windstorm, <laughs> you don't want to knock out all the controls that are, are susceptible to to a windstorm all at the same time. That would not be good. So having some sort of diversity of controls that are indoors and outdoors or whatever might protect against that. That's not a great example, but it's something. No, that is actually, Chris. I think that's a great example. And that also kind of, you know, when you're doing a bow tie analysis, a scenario like that could be could be captured, you know, and, and that's that common failure mode. So, you know, that's, that's a really good point. And then, yeah, so the integration between them, like I know in, in, a, in a really when you're doing these type of assessments, it's great to have zero have them be independent. Yes. <laughs> I think it's what we're striving for. But in real life, things rely on each other. Wind power can knock out power to multiple things at once. Um, one control might be, you know, uh, across different threats. So how are they integrated and establishing that? And then the robustness. And the robustness ones that I see quite a bit with our work. And we even talked about it. The example was the material chokes in a screw conveyor. So you can remove a couple of threads of the screw, you get a material choke. The explosion protection design concept is that that material choke will stop an explosion propagating from point A to point B through that um, screw. Which is inherently safer design. Which is inherently safer design, exactly. So we had some great discussions with Jeff Mycroft um, in episode 177 and 178 of the podcast. First off, that this, that whole screw thing I just said is, I don't have the statement in front of me, but NFPA, at least for the last decade, has said that's not an effective explosion isolation technique. Um, it was tested and under due to a lot of industry loss and due to um, just actually testing an explosion in, in a screw conveyor it was found that material was being pushed out and, and didn't work even as design. But in, in addition, I'd say it did work. Um, well, it has inherent administrative control. You need to keep material in that screw. So if you ever run it dry, you're going to have explosion propagate through that screw. So here we have a really nice, inherently safer design option, but it's controlled by a kind of a flimsy administrative control where you know, if you're like, it may be quite, it may be multiple times a day that you run that material through that, that screw until there's that blockade's not there anymore. Depends on the operation. In some cases, you know, you may have, have it choked all the time, but if it's controlled, if an ISD control is controlled by such a flimsy administrative control, that's easy to overpass, then you haven't really done justice in making your, your, it's, it's kind of like sticking grandma in the room when she doesn't want to be down there. And then she's sneaking up the stairs to sleep upstairs at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hundred. So, Chris, you really hit on another um, really key finding in my master's research was that we've mentioned degradation factors. So, those are the conditions where a barrier could be less effective. Inherently safer design barriers also have degradation factors, and you've just you've mentioned them several times over here. So, that is an important consideration and something to keep in mind. Yeah, definitely. All great points uh, with the material choke and kind of how that can be degraded. And the other point that I wanted to make was just, we call them or we refer to them kind of as administrative controls with ISD overtones, if you will. So even if, you know, you're having a hard time incorporating true inherently safer design, still maybe think about, I would encourage operations and end users to think about, can we, you know, maybe think of ways to incorporate the ISD principles, if you will, into maybe some, some of those more administrative controls. So, you know, if we're using a safe work procedure, well, how 
clear is it to understand? You know, is it well written? Can it be easily interpreted? So on and so forth. So I would still encourage, you know, administrative with ISD overtones, if you will. And there are some barriers that, like I said, are are kind of administrative with ISD overtones. And a good example of that is your housekeeping program, your combustible dust housekeeping program. So even though your program itself is administrative, it is achieving um, ISD, if you will, through minimization of fuel loadings. So you're reducing the combustible dust fuel loading through it administrative means. Again, like you said, Chris, could be a little flimsy depending on, you know, the reliability of that program. But nonetheless, just considering how you can explicitly consider ISD principles and the operations uh, can bring, I think, a lot of value. Yeah. And the uh, a properly done bow tie analysis that includes degradation factors and then controls those degradation factors kind of highlights some of that, right? Like you're only truly as good as your weakest barrier, really. Your weakest, but even the barrier is only as good as its weakest degradation control and its own barrier. Yes, <laughs> I guess it's yeah. kind of what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So host scheme is a great example, right? Like, so it's, so we could say in host, the end result is inherently safer, but I mean, every, every year we have dozens and dozens of dust explosions that are caused by incorrect host keeping. Um, in some cases they're, it's non-existent, but in other cases it's there and just not done correctly. It doesn't capture all the surfaces in the building. It doesn't, you know, it's done a high enough frequency, wherever the outcome is, because it's a, a ISD barrier control by administrative control, there's more um, room for that to, to fail in the hierarchy controls. Really interesting discussion, Kaylee. I don't know, any any last comments you want to leave folks off with before we, we switch this off today? And hopefully we will get on, talk about the next project as well, and, and even some of the other outcomes of this project at a future date, but, but anything else? We, we covered quite a lot of ground. Yeah, we covered a lot, Chris. No, I would just, um, you know, if you have any questions about inherently safer design, you know, I would encourage you to uh, check out Dr. Paul Amiot's work. Um, he does have an open access uh, journal publication with Dr. Faisal Khan as well that was published uh, last year. Um, of Maybe you could link to that in the show notes as well, Chris. I can't, um, I think it's the role of inherently safer design in process safety, I believe. Uh, yeah, so I, that's open access. So I would encourage uh, listeners to to check that out. And of course, shameless plug, I guess you can uh, learn more about the work that WPAC and BCFSC is doing on uh, www.pellet.org. They have um, an outline of their uh, different safety initiatives on their website. Uh, and you can also check out my own website, uh, obexrisk.com. I'll be uploading some resources around ISD um, in wood pellet operations there shortly, but you can uh, learn a little bit more about bow tie analysis as well um, and and CCM on my website as well. Um, And of course, feel free to connect through email, phone, um, LinkedIn. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Um, We'll include a bunch of links in the show notes here to uh, Kaylee's master's research, to the the journal paper that kind of is the shorter summary that comes out of that. Um, I did find the role inherently safer design in process safety by, just want to make sure I get all the authors, but I know Dr. Uh, Paul Amion and Dr. Faisal Khan are on. Okay, just by those two. That is open access, or I see a little lock here with it unlocked. So you should be able to download that. Um, We'll include Woodpell Association of Canada and BC4 Safety Council as well. And of course, we'll include OBEX's risk website. And if you want to contact Kaylee and learn more about what she does, we'll have a way to connect with her in the show notes. Those will be at deathsafetyscience.com slash 184 for this episode. Um, thanks, Kaylee, for coming on. Thanks for keeping the you know keeping working at this really 
excellent process safety work, work in combustible dust safety in, in industries in Canada. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks a lot, Chris. And it's been a pleasure working with you and I uh, look forward to continuing that. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll talk soon. I'm sure this will not be the last time we'll get you on the podcast. So uh, thanks for the work that you do. Thanks, Chris. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Kaylee Rayner-Brown, uh, process safety specialist and director of OBEX Risk based at Halifax, Nova Scotia. We're talking about, uh, I guess, part four of this installment of this ongoing project with Canadian wood pellet mills. So episode 131, we talked about the history of Wood Pellet Associated in Canada with Gordon Murray. In episode 132, we talked about identifying and implementing critical controls with Sherry Whalen from BCFSC, British Columbia Forest Safety Council, I think. And 133, we talked about uh, inherently safer design using bow tie analysis with Dr. Paul Amiot. So in this episode, we talked through the application of bow tie analysis really to consider the hierarchy controls, consider inherently safer design using these, these approaches that we, we discussed in the episode. So we talked a bit about Kaylee's background. We talked a lot about the, the influence that Dr. Amiot has had in Western Canada and, and, and beyond globally in process safety in things like bow tie analysis, things like inherently safer design and combustible dust research more broadly. Um, we got a little bit of the backstory about how Kaylee got involved with that. And you've heard a bit of my, my backstory and getting involved with Paul as well uh, before. And some interesting things come out of that. So we, Talk about how risk management and environmental protection are really two fields that are, have pretty similar concepts that are included across them. And one even kind of plugs in the other. If you can prevent the, the loss of containment, then you can prevent the impact on the, the environment. We talked about sort of the general um, design concept here. So it is listed as a protocol, as a multi-step procedure in Kaylee's master's thesis work. So building a bow tie analysis of your facility or the threats you're, you're dealing with, that's really a tool that could be used in process hazard analysis more broadly. We're only looking at combustible dust and a dust hazard analysis. Um, from that, you'll have your threats on one side, your consequences on your other side, and the barriers that are currently in there today to prevent that, that top event. And then what we really talked about is, okay, well, we have that. So how do we rank the current barriers that are in place? How do we talk about implementing inherently safer design within that framework? Uh, establishing what gaps might be present that uh, can be addressed, you know, using different parts of hierarchy controls or using different parts of inherently safer design. We sort of went a level deeper talking about degradation factors, talking about controls of degradation factors, talking about, you know, if you have inherently safer design or even say a passive engineered design system, but it's controlled by an administrative controller, by an active engineering system that's needed in order for it to work properly, that would be its degradation factor and its degradation factor control then you lose some of that um, ranking in the hierarchy of controls, if you will. So we talked about a lot of that. We talked through some example-based guidance for, you know, with pellet mills. We talked about, you know, minimizing horizontal surfaces, using slopes on beams, housekeeping programs, keeping the dust in the equipment, proper equipment design, simplifying equipment design, simplifying plant layout. So you don't have stuff everywhere, you know, so you don't have ducting that's really complicated and complex. Those are all different elements. We talked about human machine interfaces, electrical equipment changing out and, and substituting one type of equipment for another, substituting one type of conveying method for another. Covered a number of different examples that can be used to sort of as these mind triggers for inherently safe design. Again, the, the actual report for this project through BC WorkSafe will be hopefully made available at some point and, and we can kind of share that out as well um, through WorkSafe BC and their innovation work program. This sort of gives you some ideas around and we we toyed with this example of, you know, an elderly person and having a two-story home and, and, and fall hazard or fall incident being the concern and, and how you might incorporate inherently safer design from a redesign concept 
Um, if that's not feasible, then how you might incorporate inherently safer design with what you have today and how some administrative controls might come in place. You might need to stick some boards or something across those stairs so they don't keep going up them. But, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a fun example just to give an idea about how some of this stuff works together. So I do want to close up by thanking everyone involved in this project, BC Forest Safety Council, Woodpell Association of Canada, Dalhousie, OBEX Risk, and, and the work that we are doing through Dust Safety Science. And also thank uh, WorkSafe BC for their continued efforts for improving combustible dust safety, improving process safety with the industries there. We're going to close this episode today. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We have a safe, productive week ahead, and I appreciate everything you're doing, industries handling combustible dust, making them safer with the work you have to do every day. 